0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. It's Dan Ambinder here. We are ecstatic about bringing this third prevention episode to your feeds If you have not yet tapped into the prevention greatness, check out episode 38, where Amit, Green, Heather, and myself discuss the case of Kanak Amin and provide a practical 2 plus 4 approach to prevention. In episode 39, we hear the story of Kanak Amin himself from his patient perspective, which is just incredibly valuable. In this episode, we have prevention all-star and dear mentor of mine, Dr. Roger Blumenthal, director of the Johns Hopkins Ciccaroni Center for the Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease and stellar Osler resident, Dr. David Feldman, first author of a beautiful state-of-the-art review in preventive cardiology, discussing a comprehensive ABCD's approach to prevention. We are truly honored to be producing this series in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology. See the link on the episode description to get on their website. It's an incredible resource for learning, networking, and promoting the ideals of cardiovascular prevention. Just remember, we are an independent educational platform brought to you by Cardio Nerds who just love cardiology and teaching. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. All right, let's get to the show. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Roger Blumenthal. Dr. Blumenthal is a professor of medicine and the director of the Johns Hopkins Chikoroni Center for Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease, for which he was the principal developer. He received his medical degree from Cornell Medical College He did his internal medicine and cardiology fellowship training at the Johns Hopkins Hospital before joining Johns Hopkins Cardiology faculty. He was the co-chairperson of the 2019 ACC AHA Guideline on Prevention and Cardiovascular Disease. Most importantly for me, Dr. Blumenthal, who is a super athlete and really into sports, especially lacrosse, treated the Barker Firm intern class to an Orioles game back in 2015. It was also in his clinic that I saw the first patient as a general cardiology fellow. I was sweating hard. Most importantly, Dr. Blumenthal has been an incredible cardio nerd fan since its inception, and this has been incredibly project-affirming. Dr. Blumenthal, welcome to the show.
1: Well, Dan, thank you very much. And my greatest accomplishment is co-authoring the first paper of your fellowship uh, called Cardiovascular Health Simplified, when you quoted Ben Franklin saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And you said it applied equally well to both fire safety and to heart health. So I thought that was a good way to off the program today, Dan.
0: I love that. And actually, uh, we have been thinking of that Brent Franklin quote for this whole series. This really uh, is such an important series that we are doing on prevention.
2: Absolutely. And I'd like to add to Dan's introduction by saying that as a cardiology fellow, it's always a fun and educational experience to rotate through the prevention clinic with Dr. Blumenthal. It's obvious that he's passionate about not only teaching trainees, but always places an emphasis on patient education. something that is really critical in the field of prevention. As Dan mentioned, Dr. Blumenthal has really been an avid supporter of CardioNerds from the very start and is one of the inspirations behind us launching the CV Prevention Series. Dr. Blumenthal, we are so excited to have you with us here today.
1: Today, we have the uh, pleasure of also introducing uh, David Feldman. David grew up in Miami. He was a dominant high school baseball player. He went to the uh, Ransom Everglades School. And word has it that people compared his uh, baseball prowess to Alex Rodriguez, also from Miami. And then after that, David went to Cornell and graduated in 2013 and following that he worked as a research fellow under uh, Mike uh, Blaha at the Hopkins Chicorone Center from 2013 to 2015. David then went to the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine for an MD and an MPH degree. And we were very fortunate to recruit him back to the Oster Medical Service. And now David is uh, just starting his uh, junior year of residency. So David, welcome very much.
3: Thank you, Dr. Blumenthal. I appreciate it. And I just want to thank Amit, Kareen, and Dan for inviting me to join Cardio Nerd for what I'm sure will be an exciting discussion. I also want to thank Dr. Blumenthal, Dr. Mikos and Dr. Martin for their support and mentorship on our uh, recent ABC manuscript. And lastly, just want to thank my amazing co-resident, Dr. Michael Chalazi for covering the beginning of my shift in the CCU tonight to allow me to be here with you guys.
0: David, thanks so much for being here. I heard such wonderful things from you and I can't wait to work with you in the future. Specifically, Gabe Shia, who will be on one of our other episodes, could not talk about you highly enough. It was amazing.
4: Yeah, and I'll definitely second the thanks to Michael Chalazzi because, David, having you on the show and uh, having you join us is so special. Uh, Getting right to it, guys, I've been teaching my son the ABCs, but uh, reading all of your work, I realized that there's so much more we can do with the ABCs. And of course, we're talking about cardiovascular prevention. So, David, you wrote this beautiful state-of-the-art review in the American Journal of Preventive Cardiology, which came out just a couple of months back. Would you mind telling us about the ABCs of cardiovascular prevention?
3: Yeah, of course. Thanks, Amit. In collaboration with the Jackson Five, uh, Dr. Blumenthal and the Chickering Center have long adopted the ABCs to help streamline and simplify the approach to cardiovascular prevention. Cardiovascular disease prevention requires prioritization of early and effective detection of cardiovascular disease in order to implement aggressive lifestyle and pharmacologic therapy. This process really starts with assessing individual cardiovascular disease risk. And this takes us to the A in the ABCs, uh, which should always start with the assessment of cardiovascular disease risk. Also included in A is aspirin therapy and anti-inflammatory therapy. Both therapies had exciting updates in 2019 based on new ACC and AHA primary prevention guidelines, as well as RCT data, including CIRT and COLCOT. B includes body weight and blood pressure. C includes cholesterol and cigarette smoking and cessation. D is for diabetes diet, dream, or sleep, and digital health. E is for exercise or physical activity. And F is for factors of the environment. And lastly, G is for genetics.
2: Wow. Thanks for going through that, David. Let's review some cases from the Cardio Nerds Prevention Clinic, just to really illustrate the ABCs in practice. Let's take it one letter at a time. Our first patient is Ajay Amin, a 58-year-old gentleman from Gujarat, India, who was referred after his LP little a level was noted to be elevated at 75 milligrams per deciliter. He has a history of CKD, psoriasis, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. He's never used tobacco. His father had an MI treated with cabbage at the age of 51, and his ASCVD score by pooled cohort equation is 6.9% blood pressure 120 over 75, total cholesterol 180, HDL 50, and an LDL of 150. He's taking Valsartan. He was told he doesn't need a statin because his risk was not high. In addition, his PCP stopped his aspirin in 2018, but he's not sure why. So let's review the A's of CV prevention to help Ajay Amin.
3: So according to the Chikoroni ABCs, the evaluation should really start with assessing an individual's risk. And for Mr. A, we should first estimate his 10-year ASCVD risk according to the pooled cohort equations. Uh, this can be accessed online and helps you automate this estimation. It includes the individual's age, sex, race, systolic and diastolic blood pressure, total cholesterol, HDL and LDL cholesterol, the history of diabetes, smoking status, and antihypertensive. Uh, medication stat. Based on those factors, here we see uh, Mr. A's 10-year ASCBD risk is 6.9%. So based on the pooled cohort equation and estimated risk alone, Mr. A does fall just short of the threshold for initiating statin therapy. However, you know a clinician-patient risk discussion should still occur. And during this discussion, the guidelines would recommend considering additional risk-enhancing factors or imaging data, including coronary artery calcium score which can be considered to determine his eligibility for statin therapy. Part of this discussion, of course, includes other aspects of our ABC approach, including the appropriate use of aspirin therapy. To date, the search for an effective and safe anti-inflammatory pharmacologic agent for the primary prevention ASCBD is still ongoing. However, we know that the effects of a healthy lifestyle, including regular physical activity, a healthy diet, Maintaining an optimal weight and avoiding tobacco products cannot be emphasized enough for their anti inflammatory effect.
1: David, all those are really good points. I guess I would say if that person came to me, I would tell him that in that five to seven and a half percent range, which Mr. Mean is in, you know, that's an area where I would lean to really even just going ahead and starting on statin therapy. That person's LDL is high, and I'm really worried about the fact that his father had a heart attack and bypass surgery at such a young age. So I would probably push hard just to say, let's start on statin therapy. And then uh, if uh, that person balked and said, you know, Dr. Blumenthal, I'm, I really don't want to go on a medicine. I want to see if I can get things done with lifestyle habits. I would tell them that uh, coronary calcium, just as you said, would be a, a really good tiebreaker. But even if that coronary calcium score was uh, zero, I, I'd still be concerned about that family history and the, the high LDL. So uh, just as you said, he has a number of risk-enhancing factors. He's South Asian, has an elevated LP little a, and may have some issues with chronic kidney disease, as you said, and that family history is concerning. The anti-inflammatory therapies aren't ready for prime time. So when I think anti-inflammatory, I think of uh, better dietary and exercise habits. And you, Kareen. Uh, um, Amit, Dan are all very uh, gung-ho in trying to get people to make those sustained lifestyle uh, changes. So I think you did a, a great job with assessing that person's risk. And clearly, if we knew he already had atherosclerotic disease, it would make the case for aspirin even stronger.
0: Oh, thank you, Dr. Blumenthal. That was terrific. And we will uh, have Mr. Amin checked out and on his way. But we have a very busy prevention clinic for you today, and we've got to present another patient. So Ms. Belinda Babier is a 62-year-old woman from Venezuela with morbid obesity. Her BMI is around 48. Type 2 diabetes, her A1C is 6.9%. And hypertension, she's just taking amlodipine and clorthalidone. How do you go about the Bs in cardiovascular prevention to help out Miss Belinda Bavier.
3: So when thinking about Miss B from the A, B, C B perspective, BMI and blood pressure are the things that come to mind. A Miss B with a BMI of 48, which is a measure of a person's weight in kilograms divided by the square of height in meters, falls under class 3 obesity. In men and women, a normal BMI is less than or equal to 25, and achieving a healthy BMI with a heart-healthy diet and daily physical activity will be crucial for Miss B to optimize her atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. Waist circumference, although not included here, can sometimes be another measure for assessing body weight. Normals, which include less than 35. Five inches in women and less than 40 inches in men. An additional step in helping to improve her blood pressure will be weight loss, which should start with counseling, caloric restriction, healthful nutrition, and physical activity. However, if she's unable to achieve an adequate drop in her weight, clinicians can discuss the appropriateness of considering pharmacologic therapies or even bariatric surgery in consultation with a multidisciplinary team. A brief mention about her blood pressure. So again, to effectively control her blood pressure for ASCVD risk reduction, patients need to actively participate in their care. Part of this process is engaging in aggressive lifestyle modifications, including diet and physical activity, but oftentimes patients will require antihypertensive medication to achieve a goal of for most patients of less than 130 over 80. Another opportunity for engagement can be home blood pressure monitors, which can limit the effects of white coat hypertension and also provide real-time data on a daily to weekly basis, which can help safely titrate blood pressure medications as long term as decisions can be based on more than one-time measurement in the doctor's
1: office. David, that was, that was really good. I, I guess um, you know, my thoughts would be that you know I usually ask people, what's been their uh, highest weight in, in their uh, lifetime? And then also, what's been their their lowest weight in the last few years? And and I asked them about when they got down to that lowest weight in the last few years, what were they doing differently? Were they uh, using Weight Watchers? Were they uh, following some special dietary changes? Were they more regular exercisers? And I, and I I try to get them to realize that you know perhaps a achievable goal might be two to three pounds a a month over six months can play a, a key role in really lowering lowering one's risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, high triglycerides, et cetera. I usually try to get people to think about counting calories where they can jot down what they eat, use myfitnesspal.com or LoseIt.com, And we often say in our prevention guidelines, initially, we're trying to get people to figure out what their daily calorie average is and try to see if they could decrease their calories by 400 a day in conjunction with uh, more regular physical activity. It could be moderate walking. It could be intermittently brisk walking. We try to also talk about the quality of the food, more fruits, vegetables, fiber, whole grains. And for so many people, we try to get them to decrease the speed of eating. Because when you eat quickly, like unfortunately a lot of us cardio nerds learned to do when we were uh, busy interns and fellows, uh, you know, we were always worried when our beeper was going to go off next. When you eat more quickly, you tend to put in more calories in your system. So there are a number of really important lifestyle things that we always want to stress. We worry more when people have truncal obesity, more this abdominal obesity, and and clearly our 62-year-old patient, Ms. Babier, has uh, morbid obesity. And you know we tell people that we ought to really think about in the future potentially bariatric surgery, but even that requires some dedication and diligence and, and lifestyle changes. So, and again, another great job talking a, about initial strategies with uh, weight loss and with blood pressure and renal denervation is not for prime time. Maybe it'll have a role later on, but clearly uh, my initial thoughts with this patient was we really got to push lifestyle. We we really need a nurse health educator to help counsel the patient in between visits and and set some goals and try to enlist the whole family to help uh, be part of the team.
4: Yeah, that was great, Dr. Blumenthal. Thank you for that. And I can say I can totally relate to quickly eating whatever I can get my hands on whenever we have any downtime. And I'll particularly like how your line of questioning a patient about the changes in their weight and what's worked for them before, because I think that can be a a really strong tool for motivational interviewing, because clearly they've, you know, some of them have done it in the past.
1: Motivational interviewing is really important so much with uh, diet weight and cigarette cessation. And, um, you know, our our thoughts are, are right on par together there, Amit.
4: Yeah, thank you. Uh looks like our next patient just walked in. Chiyoko Chiba is a 51-year-old Japanese man with a history of former tobacco smoking, hyperlipidemia, aortic stenosis, status post-surgical aortic valve replacement two years ago, and coronary artery disease complicated by an end-stemi status post-PCI to the LAD just three months ago. His brother had an MI at age 55. He himself is on an aspirin 81 milligrams daily, ticagrelor 90 milligrams BID, and atorvastatin 80 milligrams daily. His LDL on statin therapy is 130 milligrams per deciliter. In addition, he stopped smoking after developing painful finger discoloration concerning for Berger's disease. He is going to ask his rheumatologist about the risks of vaping with Berger's disease, but wants to know if vaping is okay from the cardiovascular perspective. Let's tackle the C's of cardiovascular prevention in taking care of Chiyoko Chiba.
3: Well, first, you know, I commend Mr. C on his smoking cessation success. As we know, smoking cessation is one of the leading causes of preventable death nationwide, and therefore smoking cessation counseling should be an integral part of all patients' cardiovascular disease management. Motivational interviewing can be effective for some, however, many do require additional treatment options, and these can include nicotine replacement or even pharmacotherapy. Throughout the counseling process, Reassurance when many will inevitably fail is critical though, and should prompt another attempt, as we know that it's never too late to quit smoking from a cardiovascular disease health perspective. While many were hopeful that vaping can serve as a safe alternative or transition to stopping cigarettes, I'm afraid the long-term effects at this point though are unknown, and that in the short term, there are multiple emerging vaping syndromes thought to be secondary to e-cigarette toxin exposure And therefore, I'd be concerned about recommending that as a safe alternative for Mr. C. Now that for Mr. C, he's no longer smoking. I think concentrating on his LDL levels based on his ASCBD risk will be essential for his cardiovascular disease prevention. While you know he may not fall under the very high risk category, according to the 2018 AHA-ACC multi-society guidelines, which includes a history of multiple major ASCBD events or one major ASCBD event with multiple high risk conditions, he definitely would benefit first from up titration to high intensity statin for maximal LDL C reduction. If he was on able to achieve an LDL less than 100 or even less than 70 if he were to be that very high risk subgroup, which will depend again on whether his cardiologist and him determine which risk subgroup he falls under during the risk discussion. Addition of ezetimibe, which is reasonably priced, it's a non-statin add-on therapy that gives us additional LDL-C reduction, this should be considered for Mr. C. Well,
1: David, those are great points. Uh, one of the things um, in the history that's uh, a little bit surprising is that supposedly he's on a torvastatin 80 milligrams, but his LDL was 130. So that would suggest that if, if he was really adherent to the therapy, torvastatin 80 you would think would be lowering the LDL by 50 to 55%, which would mean that his baseline LDL would might be 250, 260, 270. And I always remember... Remember the great Hopkins clinician, uh, Nicholas Fortuna, would always talk about people who had early uh, aortic valve stenosis to think about familial hypercholesterolemia because that clearly has been shown to promote early calcification of arteries. And if this person already had a aortic valve replacement at age 49, probably had a bicuspid aortic valve and likely um, may very well have had hypercholesterolemia. So I think we have to really stress the adherence to statin therapy, go over the data, tell Mr. Chiba that clearly this is one of the things that's so very important to be on statin therapy. And then, you know, if uh, he, he already is adherent to that, just as you said, adding the zetamibe, and if uh, indeed the LDL is above 70, I also would agree that we have to think about a PCSK9 inhibitor. So we've got to make sure that Mr. Chiba is really taking his medicine, is well educated, getting that family uh, involved to get him to realize that he's a ticking time bomb and we, we need to do whatever we can to motivate him and to make sure he takes the medication. So I agree, uh, David, again, another great job with the C's.
2: Great advice, Dr. Blumenthal, and absolutely recruiting family for s- family support uh, You know, as part of the patient-centered alliance is always really important as they're the ones that are seeing the patient every day. So with that, I'd like to tell you about our next patient, Mr. Daryl Irwin. He's a 55-year-old African-American gentleman with Obesity, type 2 diabetes, and HEFPEF. His primary complaint today is insomnia, which began shortly after starting work as a casino security guard with alternating night and day shifts. It's been challenging adjusting to the schedule, but he's glad to have free and unlimited access to their buffet. It's quite dangerous. Another perk was a free Apple iWatch with his new health insurance program that decreases his premium after achieving 10,000 steps per day on average over the first year. He's taking metformin with an A1C of 8.9. So let's start by tackling the Ds of CV prevention.
3: So for Mr. E, with his primary complaint being insomnia, I think there was... Some exciting data in 2019, which of course has limitations given its observational nature. However, I think there are some things that clinicians can translate into guidance for patients regarding sleep. And that's that, you know, six to eight hours of nightly sleep can be associated with lower cardiovascular disease events and should be something that all patients strive for. So, how to achieve that can oftentimes come with. Improvement in his diet, which it sounds like avoiding that buffet will hopefully help him achieve. The Apple Watch can help track sleep in addition to other digital health devices, which are available to patients and should be utilized in those with difficulty sleeping to determine the level of deep sleep and the quality of the sleep that they're getting. And lastly, you know, I think in addition to getting good sleep, adjusting his diet, and using his eye watch to help track his physical activity level, I think improving all of those will help decrease his hemoglobin A1C while on the metformin. But thankfully for him, there are additional medications that are emerging for diabetes care and cardiovascular disease, which he should definitely talk about. And those include SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 agonists. And I think Mr. E would benefit from having a discussion once able to take care of those lifestyle factors for furthering to reduce his hyperglycemia
1: risk. David, uh, another uh, excellent analysis. I really enjoyed the Cardio nerd's presentations about heart failure with uh, Dr. Sharma and, and so many others. And speaking of heart failure, about a year ago, Chris O'Connor down uh, at Anova Medical talked about the need for guideline-directed medical therapy clinics. And he was thinking uh, mainly about heart failure, but when you think about it, we probably need these medical therapy clinics for heart failure, for diabetes, and for atherosclerotic vascular disease. We really need to educate people about better uh, lifestyle habits and make sure they're in guideline-directed medical therapy. And that's so important, and we need to be able to give people good, understandable resources. And so many times we use things from the ACC, CardioSmart.org, and American Heart Association websites that can be very helpful in getting people to realize how to improve their their dietary habits. And we now have some excellent uh, data about SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP1 receptor agonists. I usually think about GLP1 receptor agonists as being preferred in those individuals who are overweight like this gentleman and many times depending on a person's insurance plan one uh, of agent in that class uh, could be uh, used. And really for heart failure, uh, maybe because of its uh, diuretic effect and maybe because of other uh, parts of the mechanism of action, we see such a nice uh, decrease in subsequent heart failure events with SGLT2 inhibitors. But this uh, individual uh, really needs to have a, a game plan and to realize that there's 10,000 steps a day are, are, are very good, but we also want to increase the pace of the walking, intermittently do some interval training, so to speak, and really push the the pace of the walking so that they can burn up more calories and getting that team-based approach with their family members. And hopefully if uh, people have access to a skilled nurse health educator, that individual could also contact that patient a few weeks after the initial visit to Reinforce all the important things about the D's and the ABCDE's of prevention. So that was again a great case.
0: Thank you. Your advice is just so marvelous as usual. You know, I personally struggle with or struggled with my weight for many, many years. I remember very vividly my mom dragging me to a nutritionist when I was around 250 pounds in elementary school, and I'd, I'd like sneak out after school and run and grab myself a chocolate Danish, and I'd come home and she'd see like chocolate all over my Braces and just <laughs> get really mad at me, and then I ended up losing a lot of weight before medical school. I had some time to do that, but uh, I have to say residency was not kind to me. you know wearing scrubs all the time is uh, it 's tricky business. You, you gain a lot of weight without changing your scrub size. Uh, you know, And then, uh, so I, I actually I came off of residency being quite hefty. And then I started off in July, cardiology fellowship in your clinic. And I realized, you know, you have a lot of consultations with people from all over the world, and they come with all different problems. And some have very complex lipid allergy issues, and some have no problems whatsoever, but they just are seeking, you know, guidance on prevention, and they're in perfect health, other than the fact that they don't, they come in overweight, and they're not exercising, at all, and no matter how complex a patient's past medical history is, or how simple. You, you really never forget the main foundations of prevention, namely, you know, exercise and dieting and just lifestyle modifications remain such a pivotal point of your advice to all patients. And so, you know, going back to Mr. Irwin's case, you're still always fixated on the key things that really make a difference. You know, we definitely can have him do better. David and Dr. Blubbill, how would you counsel him in your clinic in Jayhawk, especially if he's just not quite cutting it in the exercise that he should be doing?
1: Well, I think a lot of times we'll try to focus in on the the idea that we want to increase the total number of steps that a person uh, can walk a a day. But probably what's even more important is the briskness of that physical activity. And I also try to find out if they have any home exercise equipment. It may be easier for patients rather than thinking of 40 minutes of uh, walking outside on a hot day that maybe they could do 15 or 20 at a brisk pace and Then uh, could also use an exercise bike in in their home for 15 or 20 minutes. And David and I are both golfers. I tell our patients who like to play golf, uh, pick up your pace on the golf course, try to go a little bit quicker going up those hills and uh, play uh, some singles tennis, not just doubles tennis, all those things add up. So the more you can get a, a person to realize that every aspect of exercise they do, if they can do it at a brisker pace and a little bit longer. It's going to pay some nice dividends.
4: Thanks for going through that, Dr. Blumenthal. I feel like we do such a good job identifying problems and prescribing things and doing procedures. But the, the basic essence of counseling like this is, um, is I think, something that we, at least I fall short of all the time. So it's great to hear your approach to these issues. Moving along to our next patient, Fawaz Gulzar is a 49-year-old man from Kuwait who is a firefighter. It's been a dry summer with lots of shrub fires. He recently lost his older brother to a massive MI and he's worried about his own health. He has a strong family history of early MI or stroke in multiple family members, including his father, siblings, and cousins. He is wondering if there's anything he can do to break through the curse of the Gulzar family. So let's round off the ABCs with the F and G of cardiovascular prevention for Fawaz Gulzar.
3: I think to start for the F, which we've termed as the factors of the environment can have a pretty impressive impact on the person's risk for cardiovascular disease. So I think for Mr. F, an important aspect as he's bringing to your clinic here is his concern for his genetic risk. And we know that genetic factors have a significant impact on our cardiovascular health. And one thing that really interests me about genetic factors in cardiovascular disease are that if we can implement some of these lifestyle and preventative counseling recommendations early on, no matter how small these impact seem from the beginning, over the course of a lifetime, they truly can have a pretty impressive impact on the person's risk for cardiovascular disease. I think for Mr. G, there's clearly things that he has to worry about with his family history. And I think kind of focusing on the previous things that we mentioned in the ABCD approach will help him lower his risk and minimize his genetic risk that his family
1: provides him with. Sure. So um, one of the things that Mr. G has is a sibling who had a massive MI. And I, I certainly always get very concerned when you identify a first-degree relative who's had a, a major atherosclerotic uh, disease event. And I try to I keep it um, basic. I, I like the, the ABC approach. And I say, you know, when we're assessing your risk, clearly that genetics is a very important, but we also have some uh, great data that even those in the highest genetic risk, implementation of a healthy lifestyle can be associated with about a 50% lower risk of developing atherosclerotic disease. So clearly, lifestyle is, plays such a key role. I try to probe a little bit more about any of his relatives. Were, were they smokers? Do they have high blood pressure? Do they have diabetes? And I, I try to tell people that so much of heart disease is preventable. Um, A number of epidemiologic analyses that uh, Haytham Ahmed uh, from our group at the Chikoroni Center had done, plus many others from Northwestern and and other great preventive cardiology programs that concluded that maybe 80 to 90% of atherosclerotic vascular disease could be preventable if people followed much better lifestyle habits. So Again, we want to educate and screen appropriate family members. We want to say we're not satisfied with uh, good cholesterol or good blood pressure numbers and people with this kind of family history. We want things to be excellent. We need to control what we can, but we also have to get people to realize that even if they don't have any evidence of atherosclerotic disease by middle aged, that uh, maybe uh, they're, they're still destined to manifest some later in life. And you want to have people think about they want to be in good health to see their children grow up and hopefully their their grandchildren grow up. You want to get people motivated so that they don't have heart failure, they don't have disabling arrhythmias. And I think the motivation is so key. So no matter what uh, area of cardiology we're in, clearly uh, we want to try to motivate people and have them take a more optimistic view that they can change the natural history of atherosclerotic vascular disease.
4: I think that's such an important point because you know, breaking through what our patient says is the curse of the Gulzar family, I can imagine for an individual might feel very annihilistic. But I recently realized that, you know, even if we, you know, in the era when we, I think, are going to start looking at genetic risk factors and genetic risk scores that somebody with a built-in genetic risk of atherosclerotic disease need not be deterministic and you know, still can derive a lot of benefit from lifestyle changes. So with that, David, I want to thank you for joining us today. A lot of the script here, the questions and the cases were based on your review, which is absolutely excellent. Could you tell us a little bit about what you took away from writing the review and how it's impacted your approach to patient care?
3: Of course. Thank you, Amit. So since I started working with the Chicorone Center in 2013, I was really enamored by the simplistic approach that they took to cardiovascular disease prevention and how Dr. Blumenthal and Dr. Blaha and colleagues really adopted this ABC approach, not only for its ability to easily translate the information to patients, but for how effective it can be at promoting cardiovascular disease prevention through first assessing an individual's risk, optimizing these risk factors with appropriate preventative management, with the primary focus on improving lifestyle interventions, including a heart-healthy diet, adherence to physical activity on a daily basis, and weight loss when necessary, and You know, I every time see every time I see a patient, I think about this ABCD approach, whether cardiovascular disease is their primary issue or not, because I think there are so many important factors within this approach that can be translated to all issues and all disease states that we see in our patients that will ultimately help improve their health. But most importantly, from our perspective, as cardio nerds, improve their cardiovascular disease health. And that's, for me, what is most impactful about this ABC approach from the Chikoroni Center.
4: That's incredible, David. And, uh, you know, definitely thank Michael Chelazzi for us again for giving you the time and space to join us. Uh, good luck on your CCU call tonight. Thank you so much, Amit. And Dr. Blumenthal, the Chikoroni Center is such a jewel at Johns Hopkins and collectively has had such an immeasurable impact on cardiovascular prevention. We'd love to hear about how it was created and how it's evolved into such a powerhouse.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, many people recognize the name Johns Hopkins for excellence in uh, science and medicine, but uh, traditionally it's always been uh, known for excellence in the sport of uh, lacrosse. And Henry Ciccarone was a close friend of mine. He was a great athlete and and coach at Hopkins. And he unfortunately died after his third heart attack at the age of 50. And I was the one who got a lot of his uh, former players and friends in the business community together to uh, pledge the seed money for uh, what we hoped would be a comprehensive clinical and clinical research center geared to trying to deal with and learn more about the process that took his life so early at the age of uh, 50. And uh, over the years, we've had uh, lots of great uh, people that we've uh, worked with at Johns Hopkins. And David Feldman is an example of one of the rising stars in cardiology, now just a, a junior resident at Johns Hopkins. And I always like to think about a ACC convocation speech that Kim Williams, who was the president of the ACC back in 2015, had. And he he referenced a cartoon with two doctors, stethoscopes dangling, feverishly mopping up the bathroom floor while the sink in the corner continued to overflow. And his point was that all these uh, modifiable risk factors were leading to this inflammation in the arteries and just mopping up the floor without dealing with the root problem was something that cardiology needed to change its mindset. So in my mind, whether it's trying to prevent atrial fibrillation, either the first or subsequent event, whether it's trying to prevent the initial or subsequent uh, heart failure event or an atherosclerotic disease event, we want to think about the power of prevention, really working on uh, motivating people to Have the information and the tools to do a better job with their diet and exercise habits. And clearly, just as Dan Ambinder wrote when he was just a young first year cardiology fellow, that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's really the theme. And no matter whether you're going to be a great interventionalist like uh, Dr. Uh, Ambinder will be, or whether you're going to be more of a, a clinical cardiologist, I think. You always want to think about both primary and secondary prevention. And also, primordial prevention refers to trying to prevent the development of risk factors in the first place. It's been a great uh, pleasure to work uh, with you guys on this Cardio Nerds episode. And congratulations for all the success that you all have had.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Blumenthal. And we absolutely agree with you, even though Dan and Ahmed are planning on being interventional cardiologists. And I plan on going into advanced heart failure and transplant, both, you know, all of which are sort of. End stage diseases. We definitely recognize the importance of prevention. Of you know from a cardiovascular disease standpoint. And that's definitely something that we hope to continue to practice throughout our careers. I want to end our episode uh, with our famous flutter moments uh, and ask you, Dr. Blumenthal, what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention?
1: Well, Corinne, just last week, uh, I I got a call from a person that I had met uh, a number of years ago, and we had lost touch. And then Uh, she gave me a call to tell me that her husband had been uh, rushed to uh, Howard County General Hospital and and, uh, with a heart attack. And uh, she was rightfully concerned. And in this uh, COVID-19 era, couldn't even be in the hospital with her husband. And I I went through with her uh, what we would uh, be trying to do with the initial cardiac catheterization, but more importantly, what the plan would be long-term. And and dealing with uh, the modifiable risk factors that he had, and and giving some reassurance that there was a very good chance that things would uh, work out fine with uh, the cardiac catheterization. We'd get a roadmap of the heart arteries. But then the really hard work was going to come in. This gentleman was a smoker. He was overweight. He wasn't an exerciser. He had uh, average uh, lipids and a long history of high blood pressure. So I went through briefly how we would do things in an ABC approach. And I think we gave her a lot of reassurance, and then subsequently, I I talked to her husband uh, the next day after his event, and again talked about the ABCs of prevention. And when I mentioned the Jackson Five, I could tell he was smiling, and he he said, "Dr. Blumenthal, I I remember uh, the Jackson Five, and and you've phrased it in a way that I can understand. So I'm looking forward to working with you." And and here at at Hopkins, we're so proud of uh, David Feldman for the great work that he did about updating the ABC approach. And uh, I look forward to uh, hearing a lot more great episodes from the Cardia Nerds team. So thanks again for uh, having me on the show today.
0: David, Doctor Blumenthal, this was the best. The episode is fantastic, and I, uh, you know, part of this whole prevention series is to remind us all, you know, whether you're going into intervention or anything else, prevention, prevention, prevention. That's uh, such a cornerstone of cardiology, and we actually focused on this as well with an episode that we did with Doctor Leslie Cho, who heads the division of prevention at Cleveland Clinic, who's actually an interventionalist. So we show that these are not dichotomous tracks, but these are all very important for the care of our patients. So thanks so much for being. Your, your time is precious, and we are just so grateful for it.
1: I guess it's a wrap.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> <make it> <laughs> thanks,
4: everyone.
5: Hi, this is Alma karat I'm president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and professor of medicine, director of preventive cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds podcast. What an amazing job these folks do! and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, uh, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're gonna bring on these podcasts. By way of a, a, a slight plug, we also wanna tell you about the upcoming ASPC Congress. This is, uh, like all others, a virtual Congress now, since uh, we no longer can do face-to-face. This is happening on uh, Saturday and Sunday, July 25th and 26th. It's free for anyone to register. We strongly want to get trainees to register so they can learn more about the field of prevention and hear from some experts in the field. So we hope that many of you uh, participate in that. And most importantly, we hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these um, excellent speakers they have coming up we're all pretty passionate about prevention and we certainly want to help others learn about it too